I want to uh, thank the Dobbs family and the colleagues here at Truett Seminary for entrusting this hour to me. I want to begin uh, with just two lines of a very familiar prayer, but perhaps not in the accents with which you're most familiar. Father Ur, tu the yarten hiovnem, si thina nama yahal god, to bikuma thin richa. That's English, 1,000 years ago, and you'll recognize the first two lines of the Lord's Prayer there. My point here is that language changes, not just the English language, but every language. Some languages change more rapidly than others. In general, the more contact with other languages, the more rapid the change. In our time, the more languages mediated by advertising agencies and the entertainment industry, the more vapid the change. In a decadent culture, media conditioned to the lowest standard of verbal intelligence, a degeneration of meaning and diminishment of comprehension corresponds to our evident loss of cultural memory. In a Christian subculture such as ours, this puts the very foundations of our faith in peril. For if the scriptures are not received with understanding, a vacuum is created and that vacuum tends to get filled with rubbish. I take this to be a crucial problem for most North American Christian churches in our time. It's all too easy to laugh over the grade three vocabulary and incoherent morality of some politicians, but harder to acknowledge that in the entertainment industry, and frankly, a whole lot of preaching falls into that category, that sort of bombast full of sound and fury and signifying next to nothing is becoming merely part of the white noise people tune in or out at a whim all the more in our time. Babel of this sort is not normative language change, for in any healthy social context, the purpose of language is still to convey meaning. Babel, or psychobabble, is willfully induced distortion of meaning, usually for some ulterior purpose. There are many manifestations of this in different decadent cultures, but let me give you two concrete examples that directly impinge upon Christian ministry. First, there is the ubiquitous dumbed-down language of advertising, social media and the public square. Prophetic voices have long before now asked the question, who does this infantile order of language most serve? Two generations ago, George Orwell had a view. He warned that political chaos is connected with the decay of language. In his novel 1984, the political masters of the totalitarian state know that by reducing the vocabulary of their citizens and debasing their language, they cramp their ability to think. In our time, as columnist David Brooks has noted, public language has also become demoralized. Brooks points to the ways that virtue words have decreased dramatically while terms of abuse such as loser, disgusting, weak, and idiot have taken their place. Brooks' concern is simply that thought has suffered as a consequence. As one of his reviewers sums up his point, you cannot contemplate what you cannot articulate. How do we as Christian teachers and preachers begin to cope with the inability to contemplate what you cannot articulate. Well, not, I think, by substituting general feel-good therapies for the thoughtful teaching 
of the Word of God itself. In far too many cases, the default response to perceived inability in our congregations to think their way through even a hymn by, let's say, Isaac Watts or Charles Wesley, is to provide them with vacuous and repetitive praise songs made palatable by often, I'm afraid, schmaltzy musical accompaniment. Another path of compromise is paraphrase and modernization of the language of scripture itself. Rather than fighting the diminishment of language in our culture, some pastors prefer user-friendly paraphrases to the Bible itself, just because they have fewer difficult words. These pastors see themselves as needing to target the comfort zone of the culture more than, the scrupulous, more than to be scrupulous about conveying as clearly as possible what scripture says in the original Hebrew and Greek. Unfortunately, many a phrase in such a loose version of the Bible is neither a translation, properly speaking, nor even an adequate approximation of what the text says. For example, let's take a very familiar verse, Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's the way the KJV does it, and it's a quite reasonable translation. And what you have in the new life is, now faith is being sure we will get what we hope for. Or the message has, faith is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. Now I think these are well intended, but they're at best impoverished deflections of the original meaning. They carry a materialist overture and an emphasis on present experience, rather than, as in the original Greek, an understanding that faith is ordered to eternal beatitude, which is in fact the point of that whole chapter. When a reader or a preacher takes such language to be what the Bible says, wittingly or not, these impoverished versions actually undermine his original text. This challenge is not new. Uh, in the fourth century treatise on the Holy Spirit, Basil the Great stresses that Christian instruction begins with the proper use of speech, and he asks what theological term is so insignificant that it will not greatly upset the balance of the scales unless it is used in and among the people correctly. My point today is a similar one. In our time, as in his, the task of would-be faithful Christian preachers is not to resign themselves uh, to therapeutic moral dealism, deism, or, or some sort of weak facsimile for scripture, but to choose a reliable translation and teach from it, difficult words or no, by explaining the meaning of doctrinally important terms as we go along. That we do so with all diligence is imperative, for very often what is at stake is not merely reliable representation of God's word, but as Basil noted so long ago, the consequent understanding of his person which follows. Undeniably, the God of the Bible is difficult, holy as we are not, demanding that we become holy, even as he is holy. We are to become more in his image, not he in ours. I'm quoting here a familiar passage to you, I hope. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Likewise, though the language of Jesus is vernacular, 
He is far from easy. He not only reiterates the law of God, he intensifies it. He is poetic, teaching in parable and enigma that often leave his disciples as well as his enemies quite baffled. What he does not do is to give them a pablum of cliches and nostrums. In fact, to the great commandment, he adds noose, mind. Humble fishermen and arrogant religious leaders alike have to stretch to understand Jesus. They have to put their minds to it. You who preach are called to no easy task, therefore. For as the Apostle Paul says, we are to be imitators of God <clears throat> as beloved children. In a responsible home, I venture to say, children learn to deepen their capacity for language by, by imitating the language of their parents, also their teachers. It doesn't do any good if it's the other way around. The language which they learn ought not to be merely of the world, lightweight, sexually impure, and therapeutically vacuous in ways that will anesthetize their minds. The language which our flocks and our children need to learn and keep learning is the pure and undefiled God-breathed words of Holy Scripture, rich in transcendence and a far higher view of the meaning of persons accordingly. That they may be complete, equipped for every good work. In our time, they will need this learning to escape the great deceit, and for eternity, they will depend on it for the salvation of their souls. What I've just now been describing is a first-order language problem in our culture, universal in its power to corrupt. I want to suggest that it may, however, be dealt with successfully by a rigorous exposition of Scripture in a context which takes Scripture to be true revelation, or as T.S. Eliot said, a reliable report of the Word of God. Most of us are aware that we have also a second-order language problem, a kind of disease of language to which academics, including seminarians, are especially prone, and which, if they succumb to it, paralyzes their will as surely as it beclouds their intellect. I refer to those fashionable views we associate with the literary and linguistic school of deconstruction and its many progressive academic allies. Though not unrelated to the first problem, this order of language abuse involves the dialectical redefinition of key words in our received theological vocabulary. This second degree abuse depends upon a much greater command of the lexicon, a choice for cleverness over clarity, and it works best if its victims think they know more than in fact they do. More subtle, more academically serpentine and thoroughly Gnostic, this type of language abuse is ultimately more dangerous to the pastor or the teacher than to the person in the pew. But it can appeal to the sophomore in any of us especially if, we've made, if we have made something of an idol out of cleverness. Deconstruction, a type of subversive redefinition of words so as to make them seem unstable, even to turn them inside out, is a strategy well known to everyone in this audience. Such a tactic for achieving redefinition is not nearly so new as it seems. As a tactical maneuver, it is a long history, as old as the serpent in Eden. In theological contexts, redefiners have always capitalized upon sloppy thinking and loose understanding of terms to turn biblical meaning and biblical principles inside out, 
all the while, of course, claiming to uphold them. And in so doing, they have in many times and places been able to deceive even the very elect. The gullibility of Eve is an archetype. Some of you may remember that the fourth book of Augustine's Confessions is devoted to an acknowledgement of his willful self-deception and deception of others. For him, words have been toys, he says, instruments for entertainment, for strategy and debate, for obtaining advantage and wielding power. He admits, and I'm quoting here, I was led astray myself, and I led others astray in turn. We were alike deceivers and deceived in all of our different aims and ambitions, both publicly when we expounded our so-called liberal ideas and in private through our service to what we call religion. In public, we were cocksure, in private, superstitious, and everywhere, void and empty. A millennium and a half later, Soren Kierkegaard found that such infections of language had turned most of European Christendom into what he called a fraud. Speaking of the preaching in his day, he deplored what he described as collective, a collective feat of dialectics, which leaves everything standing but empties it of significance. He says, people still employ words such as God and holy, of course, but in such a fashion as to make it clear that God is nothing more than a weak projection of one's best self and that holy is a certain order of piety that will suffice for social respectability. The words remain, but not their meaning. If rhetoric is essentially the art of persuasion, dialectic is typically an art of dissuasion. As it operates in our own time, dialectic works not so much by persuading openly as by subverting presuppositions and traditional understandings in this way eroding meaning at its base. Such deconstruction by whatever name it goes has always been preparatory to replacing one authority with another. The great Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was not untutored in dialectical redefinition, by the way, said that he cherished each word in his language and studied them in his dictionary as if they were precious stones each so precious that he would not exchange one for another. After his conversion in the Siberian prison, he spent his entire life trying to write truth. And he knew that to do this job properly, he needed to recover the true meaning of ordinary words. By comparison, too many of our contemporaries can seem glib, sloppy in their use of the most precious words of all. Might this be a danger in our pulpits? If so, faithfulness to Holy Scripture will require of us a more rigorous use of biblical language and careful definition of key terms in our teaching and preaching. My old uh, friend uh, Jim Packer has a wonderful little book that's a help for pastors in this regard. It's called 18 Words, the Most Important Words You Will Ever Need to Know. I highly recommend it. During my student days at Princeton, <clears throat> the philosopher Walter Kaufman reflected on the trends and fashions in modern Christian thought and pronounced our own time an age of Judas. What he was saying was that the criticisms of nominal Christianity articulated by Kierkegaard more than a century earlier, a century earlier 
applied very much to America in the 1960s when he was writing. He was clearly implicating modern theologians in particular. He prefaced his critique with some rhetorical questions. Who would stand up against Christ and be counted his opponent? <clears throat> Who openly rejects the claims of the New Testament? <laughs> Imagine that at Princeton in my lifetime, people could say something like that and not seem ludicrous. <clears throat> he goes on, who lets his yea be yea, his nay, nay? For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Certainly not the apologists who simply ignore what gives offense, or when this is not feasible, offer interpretations instead of saying nay. To be sure, it is not literally with a kiss that Christ is betrayed in the present age. Today, one betrays with an interpretation. Many a subversive interpretation begins with a surreptitious redefinition of a biblical term. <clears throat> Orthodox Christians, including Baptists, have in the past comforted themselves with assurances that none of their number would betray in this way. Baptist interpretation has tended to remain reliable, we feel, because we have always held up the word of God in its own terms. Yet even as we have presumed the trustworthiness of our text in the new translation or the old translation, whatever's in the pew in front of you, we may have missed the fact that the attack against the high view of scripture has metastasized. Antagonists for three generations, many from within the seminaries, sadly, have been insisting that the issue is not in any case historical truth, which they declare to be beyond recovery, but rather an appreciation of the relative cultural perspective of the sociology of knowledge, which requires a new dialectical development of meaning, as they say, in contemporary terms. This can appear as a call for a kind of cultural translation, a demand that the energies of biblical scholarship be turned toward adapting the text to contemporary conditions that such people think are irreconcilable with the biblical view of persons and conditions. This is indeed to betray with a kiss, turning our Lord over to the dictates of our social and political shibboleths. Not merely mistranslation then, but actual rewriting of the Bible is now being called for in some quarters. Such re rewriting requires even more explicit perfidy and would-be faithful pastors will need to develop deliberate teaching strategies in the face of it. In such a spiritual war, the church needs more rigorous preaching, not less. A preaching that is scrupulous in its use of biblical language and openly corrective of the abuse of it in our culture. As our secular contemporaries become less and less literate, we must teach our congregations to become more and more literate. One difference between a genuinely literate person and an ordinary victim of cheating words is that a literate person understands the historically determined character of the language he or she is speaking. Nowhere is the advantage of such knowledge more essential that when a great text is considered, be that text Shakespeare or Plato or the Bible. In all such cases, as George Steiner puts it, we discover that every language act has a temporal determinant. No semantic form is timeless. 
when using a word, we wake into resonance, as it were, its entire previous history. A text is embedded in specific historic time. It has what linguists call a diachronic structure. To read fully is to restore all that one can of the immediacies of value and intent in which speech actually occurs and has occurred. To be interested in language as a medium for the discovery of truth is thus to approach each text, each occasion of listening or reading in humility. Someone else is talking. Humility in this case involves trying to understand the other person before asserting our own ideas, however clever we may think they are. In the case of the words of scripture, the divine author's intent is usually not all that difficult to discern in context, even where it may well, as our earliest expositors saw, have several registers of application. To get at any of these, however, we must ask about more than what a given word in a text we are expounding means to our contemporaries, for their usage may well be a debasement of that original word. Let me give you a couple of simple examples. In an age such as ours, in which many people take the highest freedom to be sexual freedom, freedom, a rather important biblical word as it happens, may have acquired a meaning so corruptive of its biblical sense as to be positively dangerous if not rerooted in historical and biblical context. If I ask my undergraduates what freedom means to them, they invariably answer in terms of choice or autonomy, even as one student wrote, liberty to define myself in whatever terms I choose. When I asked them if they think that that semantic range would do justice to the intention of Thomas Jefferson, some will pause, especially if they have studied the Declaration of Independence or read his letters. I then asked them what they think freedom meant to Chaucer or to John Wycliffe, and at that they all go blank. What about the knight and the Canterbury Tales who we are told love truth honor, freedom, and courtesia. <clears throat> I have to tell them that in the 14th century, freedom was defined in bilingual dictionaries as largesse, generosity to others. This meaning, as the Oxford English Dictionary will confirm, is in our time preserved only in the phrase, a free spirit, that sort of bon vivant who may spontaneously offer to buy everyone lunch. I had written a different word there than lunch. But any such generosity, other directed largesse or charity, is polar opposite to my students' reflex definition, in which the meaning of freedom is entirely self-directed. So then I say, do you think that when Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, he meant that the truth would make you autonomous, a law unto yourself? We typically then have a pretty good discussion in which they discover that they really haven't understood Jesus at all. For the phrase is only part of a sentence in Greek which begins in the previous verse. If you abide in my word, then shall you be truly my disciples, and then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Freedom depends in the usage of the Lord on a sequence of if-then conditionals, one 
he says, must abide in his word, live there. This is, in fact, the sine qua non condition of being a true rather than a false disciple. And only that kind of obedience and self-effacement makes it possible to have the foggiest idea of what Jesus means by freedom. Truth is another word needing clarification. In no small part, this is because the prevalent theory of truth in our time does not require any correspondence between word and deed or claim and fact. Something which characterizes the correspondence theory of truth, historically fundamental to science and medicine, and certainly normative both epistemologically and morally in the Bible. For those of you who remember Aristotle, <clears throat> whose law of non-contradiction says that something cannot be itself and a contrary at the same time, you will see that this correspondence view of truth has been common to the logic of more than biblical tradition. Those who have read the general prologue to the Canterbury Tales will remember that truth is also one of the things that Chaucer's knight loved. <clears throat> but in Chaucer's era, truth carried an additional meaning, which owed specifically to Holy Scripture, namely the virtue of fidelity or trustworthiness. That sense is still uh, visible, by the way, in the Book of Common Prayer Liturgy for Marriage in which the bride and groom conclude their vows to each other, saying, and thereto I pledge to thee my troth, which is to say more than I'm speaking these promises to you truthfully, but I am pledging myself to be faithful to you forever. In our time, another theory of truth has come to be prevalent. In all the pragmatic theories of truth, truth is whatever you and perhaps some of your peers choose to, to choose to make it. In, in the words of a prominent literary theorist, Jonathan Culler, our truth is what gets us what we want. Needless to perhaps uh, articulate this, but frankly, this theory has also been around for a very long time. When Pilate scoffed at Jesus saying, what is truth? He knew very well that truth in his world was anything that Caesar wanted it to be. For Jesus, by contrast, truth was a matter of fact, not opinion. And when he said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he clearly meant to be understood as saying that he was the embodiment of truth, the embodiment of faithfulness, and that he was trustworthy as no one in the world before him had ever been. In a self-referential world such as ours, the meaning of the word truth may be unstable in the minds of many. But the quality of truth, as it is represented in the word of God and the person of Jesus, is not a matter of subjective opinion, like my truth or our preferred narrative. The truth of God remains solid like a rock. Yesterday, today, the same forever. To teach that effectively now, we need to reroot the word itself historically and in scripture especially, with precision and clarity. As Christians, we have a crucial task, I think, before us, uh, not just as a necessity for self-preservation, but as a moral obligation to others. We must endeavor to restore the language of fellow believers, to, to the language of fellow believers, the richness and the depth 
of its historical and biblical meaning. We must show them the power of language to distinguish, to contrast, not just compare, to detail the nature of created reality in scripture and in the moral life of faithful believers. This can be done in a few sentences in almost any sermon. Uh, for those of you who will graduate from Truett into a charge in the Church of the Blessed Overhead Projector, <clears throat> it is certainly possible to do this simply by putting a few words, definitions and examples on a slide. Try that instead of a video clip from the latest TV show or movie and measure the results after a year or so in the understanding of your people. We should be more resistant to what Richard Lisher has called the gospel of technology. Actually teaching people to think, to use the language of the Bible intelligently, will not only enable them to grasp more fully the truth and recognize distortion, it will give them more self-respect, more confidence in that faith which they profess. Let us face the obvious, friends. You do not get faith in language much beyond the point where you have lost the language of faith. By allowing words whose primary meaning is anchored in scripture to be denatured by worldly abuse, we have gotten into a, a swamp from which there could be no exit without retracing our steps. We live in a world of Babel, what Richard Rorty once called incommensurable discourse, a linguistic anarchy which has proven, however, insufficiently therapeutic to ward off social calamity. To restore sanity, we will need to recognize, as Emmanuel Levinas has put it, that in the end there can be no intelligibility without transcendence. A corollary of this axiom is that there can be no sustained morality without ontology, just as there can be no Christian understanding without a diligent and faithful preaching of the word of God, straight up, no fizz and no ice. You are all intelligent men and women. You can all afford a good historical dictionary. What you cannot afford is to let ideological redefinition by antagonists to the word of the Lord set the default understanding of those for whom you have spiritual responsibility. You are all familiar with the closing words of the revelation to John. This is not an unprecedented warning in Holy Scripture. Here's another from Proverbs chapter 30. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Had thou not to his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. And if you'll accept a small gloss to that, don't subtract anything either. For the love of Christ and his kingdom, please be at pains to define carefully and patiently explain every word of God to your people and explain it in its original biblical register. Thank you.